Matthew 13, 44 to 46, hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. During our first ten years of marriage, we lived in ten different rented or borrowed homes. And after 10 years, we finally were in Guadalajara, Mexico, where we were planning on staying for a long time. And we were renting our first year then, but then we discovered something. We never thought that we would have the possibility of purchasing a home as missionaries, but a few things happened in 1994 in Mexico. On January 1st, the Free Trade, North American Free Trade Agreement, uh, which has just actually recently been canceled and updated, but it went into effect. Uh, Another thing is the Zapatista uh, rebels came out of the jungle and took over part of uh, southeast Mexico. But another thing that happened was the devaluation of the peso. Overnight, the peso against the dollar was devalued by half. So all of a sudden, the purchasing power in pesos uh, was half of what it was compared to the dollar. But if we were coming in with dollars, all of a sudden our dollars were twice as valuable as they had been previously. And uh, what happened was, very sadly, many people lost their cars, many people lost their homes, the real estate market tanked. Uh, But that provided an opportunity for us. And we began to look around and say, the, the, the market is awash with homes. Could we actually purchase our own home? And the, our daughters may not remember this, but every Saturday afternoon we get in the car and drive around and look at homes. And finally we found one. The yard had grown up into a jungle. The, the big plate glass window was broken, and so we entered through the gl- plate glass window. Some children in the neighborhood had taken it over and made it their clubhouse and done some destruction in it, and there was a cap of dust over everything. And we fell in love with that house. And uh, we found a sign that had fallen over in the jungle outside. We called, and they had, this person had moved to another city and was losing money every day and wanted to get rid of this house. And so we were able to borrow money and scrape together savings and we were able to buy our first house. We moved in, didn't yet have things like a kitchen, it didn't yet have all the windows in, but we had our house. First time ever. And we were able to raise our family in a house of our own. A once in a lifetime opportunity. And we were able to be able to seize that and have a home. Now, what we're reading about here are two situations that are like that. These two parables talk about two once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for two different men. And both of these are called kingdom parables. Now, we're going to do a little bit of review because there's a lot of traveling in the summer. And since there are only three verses, we can back up a little bit and talk about what we have learned in the first two sermons about parables of the kingdom. And what I want to do is, is uh, 
talk about today the similarities in these two parables and the differences. But before we do that, let's talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, and let's talk about parables. Now, uh, kingdom of heaven, we actually haven't defined this yet. And Jesus never defined it either. He told parables to point us to it and teach us about it. But both of these parables are about the kingdom of heaven. By the way, in Matthew, it's kingdom of heaven. In Mark and Luke, it's kingdom of God. Why? Because Matthew had a Jewish audience, and whenever possible, Jews would avoid saying the name of God. And that's why it's kingdom of heaven in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? It is not a place... It is rather a rule, a reign, a reigning over. It is the activity of God ruling over redemptively. That is to say, it is God's redeeming rule, His rule to buy back that which was lost, to bring back those who had separated themselves from Him and rebelled against Him. It is His rule over them for their recovery, for their rescue, for their salvation. And Jesus' parables are stories. And if you notice, some of these are long stories with many details, and others are very short stories like the ones we're looking at today. But what they do is they put beside a comparison, something known with something unknown. And the known thing is something very obvious and clear and simple, and the unknown thing is is that to which the known thing points. Now, in the first two sermons, we saw that they have at least three purposes. Parables have, somewhat paradoxically, these purposes. The first purpose is to conceal, to conceal the truth so that it is not obvious. Parables are something like riddles. They don't come out and tell you the answer. They hide the truth. That's one of the purposes of parables. But they do so temporarily. We saw that Jesus used parables because he had a time plan and he was executing that according to his plan. That's why he used parables. Uh, The second thing they do is that they reveal. They are, after all, teaching. They are, after all, illustrations of the kingdom of God. They are trying to bring forth truth about the kingdom of God. So they conceal and they reveal at the same time. And that enigmatic character of parables, that riddle aspect of parables, when somebody tells you a riddle, what do you do? You try to do what? You try to figure it out. And that's what parables do, because they are concealing and revealing at the same time. They are a challenge to us. They are an invitation to us. They are a call to us to figure them out, to ask, to seek, to think, to pray, to wonder, and to go to Jesus and say, would you explain that to us, please, which is what the people did in those days. Now, um, there is a secret. There is a secret that unlocks all the parables. And we saw this secret in the very first parable. Uh, He said to the the disciples, to those on the outside, they have parables so that they won't understand, but so that they must seek. But to you who are on the inside, the secret has been given. God has given you the secret. And they weren't even apparently sure what that secret was. They had to sort of figure that out as well. But the secret was standing right in front of them. The secret was Jesus. And the secret of the kingdom is that Jesus is the king. The secret of the kingdom is that the parables are about Jesus. And once again, we say, that's no secret. We all know that. But once again, we all know that because we've been given the secret in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They were not given that secret. They had to figure it out. But that unlocks all the parables. Now, let's look at these two brief parables. 
Both of them, they have some things in common and then some differences. We'll look at the similarities first. Both of these parables are about finding something of value that was previously undiscovered. It was previously hidden. The first one is a man who finds a hidden treasure. The second one is about a man who finds a pearl. And both of these were of great value, but they were previously undiscovered. Now, we saw this in the parables before, uh, that there were hidden things. The seed in the parable of the sower, the parable of the mustard seed, where was it? It was, if it was going to do any good, it was hidden in the ground. Uh, And we also saw that the leaven, uh, last week's parable, where was the leaven? It was hidden in the mass of the dough. So this is throughout these parables. There's something hidden that is then coming to light. It's being discovered. And this is, as we've seen, this is part and parcel with what Jesus was doing. This is part and parcel of what God was doing in sending Jesus. He didn't come with trumpets blaring. He didn't come with a uh, a host of angels from heaven announcing Him to everyone, just to some shepherds. He didn't come and reveal Himself immediately. He came in obscurity. He came in a hidden way. He came incognito. He came under cover. And so the parables go along with that idea that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth hidden. He came covered. He came in a not obvious way. And therefore, many people in His day did not recognize Him. He came to His own, but His own didn't receive Him because they didn't recognize Him. He was undercover. He wasn't what they were expecting. And the most undercover thing, perhaps, that God did in sending Jesus, we could think that the incarnation, Him becoming a human being, that's certainly undercover, isn't it? But there's something even even more undercover, if you will, and that's the cross. Think about this. Think about this message that God came and He became one of us. Now, that's undercover to begin with, but then if we go on and we say that He lived in obscurity for 30 of His 33 years, and then He taught and became well-known, but then at the end of those years, His life was snuffed out, apparently, by being handed over to Romans as a criminal, handed over by His own people, and nailed to a Roman cross, the most degrading death possible. Now, if you talk about undercover, that's an undercover God. That's a God who's doing something incognito. And we find that Paul uh, celebrates this fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says this. This is, this looks like foolishness to us. This is not how kings or presidents or magnates come in to an area. It says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but those who are called, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying, do you want to impress the Jews? Then part the Red Sea. Do some powerful miracles. If you want to impress the Gentiles, then, then bring in Aristotle or Plato, and, and let's give us some, some impressive wisdom. But that's not how God did it. He did it by a cross. Jesus dying on the cross. The hiddenness that needs to be discovered if we are going to recognize God. We need to recognize Him in this hidden way. And that's the point of this parable. Two things that were hidden that came to light. Now the second thing about these two parables that they have in common is that they both emphasize that the kingdom of God is of supreme value. Supreme value. What did both men do when they came across this this uh, either treasure or this pearl? Both of them sold everything they had and they cashed it in and they exchanged it so that they could have that one thing. So that the first man could have that hidden treasure, so that that second man could have that pearl of great price. This was more valuable than everything else they had. And they were willing to give absolutely everything in exchange for this great treasure. They are like the first disciples, if we go back in Matthew, and look at how Jesus called His first disciples. We have uh, Peter and Andrew. They had a a fishing business. And then James and John, they had a fishing business, and they had it as a family business, and they apparently had some means because of their own hired workmen, and they had their own boats and nets and so on. And Jesus said, what? Follow me. And it says they left everything and followed Him. And then there was another one, Matthew, also called Levi, he had a very prosperous business. He was a tax collector. And they had a tendency to line their own pockets with uh, extra charges from their own countrymen. And it says he left the tax booth and followed Jesus. It contrasts with the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? There was that third seed that fell among those, uh, the thorns, And it says that it was choked out, and that represented the concerns of the world, the worries about riches that came in and choked the the seed, and it became unprofitable, unfruitful. And there also was a man later in Matthew who wanted to follow Jesus. And he was very enthusiastic, and he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what do you read? And he said, well, I read about the commandments. And Jesus said, okay. If you want to have eternal life by the commandments, then just keep them all. Keep all the commandments. And he didn't like that answer, and he said, well, I've done all that. Well, we'll leave that aside, whether he had done all that or not, but nobody has done all that. But he thought he had done all that, and Jesus said, okay, one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he went away sad, because he wasn't willing to do that. It wasn't that valuable to him. He wanted to add it to his life, He wanted to add Jesus to his life, but he didn't want Jesus to be all-consuming. He wanted him to be in his life, a part of his life, but he didn't want him to be controlling. He didn't want a king. He didn't want a reign. He didn't want a ruler. And so he went away sad. Now, both parables also have in common this. They emphasize that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is in our best 
interest to have. It's in our best interest. What did the first man do? It says his emotion here. When he found this hidden treasure, then what did he do? He said, in what? Joy. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He was not unhappy about having this hidden treasure. And then it doesn't mention the joy, but it, it mentions the, the, the alacrity with which the second man, uh, this merchant, he went and when he found this pearl, immediately, voluntarily, and it, apparently joyfully, he sold everything he had, he cashed it all in, and he bought that one pearl of great price. They did not feel like they were losing in this transaction. They knew that they had gained that which was most valuable, and it was in their best interest. Now, that's interesting. They were acting out of what? Self-interest. And that's one of the points of these parables. It is in our best interest to be part of the kingdom of God. That is what's most valuable to us, and that is what is most beneficial to us, to have God reigning over us in a redeeming way. And Jesus does not rebuke this sort of calculation. On the contrary, He encourages this sort of calculation. If you go to the end of Matthew, well, not the end, but Matthew 19, I mentioned that rich young man who went away because he had too many riches and he just wanted part of Jesus. He didn't want Jesus' rule over his life. And Peter was was a, a bit astounded here. Because Jesus said it's difficult for with those who have possessions to enter the kingdom of God. And then Peter said in verse 27, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? But Jesus didn't say, Peter, you shouldn't think like that. You shouldn't think about yourself. You shouldn't calculate like that. You shouldn't worry about what you're going to get out of this. On the contrary, he raises the stakes. And he says, Peter, I'm glad you asked that. Because I want you to know what you are going to get out of this. And listen to what he says. Jesus said to him, to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So he's saying, Peter, don't worry. Don't worry. You won't miss out. You won't lose in this exchange. On the contrary, you will have more than you could ever have imagined. And so he appeals to our self-interest. This is what's best for us to have the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom. Marriage is a good, a good illustration because we do something when we get married. We give up many, many opportunities and we restrict ourselves to one. There is a, a traditional vow that goes like this. Groom, will you take bride to be your lawful wife? Will you love her? honor and keep her in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep only unto her so long as you both shall live. And then asks the bride the same thing. Now, we might wonder, who would do that? Who would say, 
of all the possibilities out there, I am going to restrict myself just to one. There's so many wonderful women in the world. Why would any man just say, I'm going to just stick to one, and there's so many wonderful men. Why would a woman say, I'm going to stick to just one? And we all know the answer to that, don't we? Why does someone do that? Why do any of us do that? Because we hope to get more. We hope to have more as a married person than we could ever imagine by having multiple partners. That's how marriage works. We give up all. We give up all our other options. We cash them all in. And we say, I'm putting all my chips in this one place. That's what we do when we enter the kingdom. But there's something else about marriage that's a good illustration of how the kingdom works. Does that mean that I will never, ever have another, any sort of contact or friendship or relationship with any other woman? No. I will deal with women all the time. More than half of the world's population consists of women. And so I will have many, many contacts with women. But what happens there? There is a governorship over all of my relationships with other women. There is a reign. There is a ruler that determines how I should relate to every other woman on the planet. That's what marriage does. It's the rule over the married person. And that's how the kingdom is. Does the kingdom say you will never have any other concerns in life? You will never have to be concerned about anything else in life. No, it doesn't say that. But what it says is this. All of those other concerns must be placed under the kingship of Jesus. That all of those are submitted to the rule of God. That's how the kingdom works. It is all or it is nothing. And that's what these parables point to. Now, those are the similarities. But there are differences in these parables that are also instructive. And one difference that is is fascinating to me, at least, is that one man found his treasure by accident. And the other man found his treasure by looking for it. The one man stumbled on it. We don't know how he found it. He was in the field. He was doing something in the field. He stumbled on a hidden treasure. He wasn't looking for a hidden treasure. The other man, he was a merchant. And it says he was seeking pearls. And he finally found it. And I'm guessing that these two ways of of finding the kingdom are represented here. There are probably some of you here, like me, if you are part of the kingdom already, that you were the most surprised person to find yourself in the kingdom. That's how I was. I was not seeking God. I was not seeking to know Him. I was not searching. I was fine, thank you very much, in my own mind. I was not after truth. I was not after God. God surprised me. And I was the most surprised of anyone to find that I, of all people, was a Christian. But I know people. I've talked to them. And they've said, Larry, all my life I wanted to know God. And I searched high and low. And I couldn't find Him. And I tried this and I tried that. And I finally found the good news about Jesus, and I finally found that I could know God through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're the first, like I. Maybe you're the second. But however that might be, both find. It says both of them found. One by accident, and one by seeking. The second difference is that the first man was apparently relatively poor, and the second man was relatively wealthy. 
the first man looks like he was, well, he was, he was laboring on somebody else's field. We don't know if he was plowing, we don't know if he was planting a tree, we don't know if he was digging a well, but it looks like he's a laborer on somebody else's land. At the same time, he had at least enough accumulated that he could sell it and buy that field. We don't know how big the field was or anything, but he had some means, but apparently he had to work for other people. Where the second man, he looks like he was an independent merchant. And uh, he was able to uh, to cash in all that he had accumulated, which was apparently a fabulous sum, and buy this pearl of great price. Now, this was before cultural pearls. This was before manufactured pearls. This is when pearls were of exceedingly great value. And even to this day, uh, nor uh, large and, and more or less perfect natural pearls command a great price. So, um, what's the lesson here? For whom is the kingdom of God? Well, it's for those who labor with their hands. And it's for those who crunch numbers. Uh, the kingdom of God is for those who are living in the field and those who are living in the cities. Uh, it's for those who have a little and it's for those who have much. And the last thing, the last thing about uh, the differences in these parables is that the first man who started out with relatively little he secured himself financially. He was set for the rest of his life. And the second man, who started out with a great deal, he essentially ruined himself financially. Think about that. The first man, what did he have? He had a treasure that he could piece out, apparently, for the rest of his life, and he could live off of that. So he was set. The second man, what did he have after he made this, this transaction? He had one pearl. You can't eat that pearl. You can't sleep under that pearl. That pearl will not keep you warm at night. You cannot do anything with that pearl except what? Enjoy the pearl. That man had to start all over with nothing. So what's the point? Well, it could be, it could be pointing at what Jesus often says, and that is the kingdom has a tendency to reverse things. The kingdom has a tendency to lift up those who are lowly. And the kingdom has a tendency to cast down those who, who are lofty. And so it may be that. But in addition to that, we find something in the New Testament that always surprises me, even shocks me sometimes. And that is the relative indifference that the New Testament shows to our condition in life. As long as we have the kingdom of God. When the Bible, the New Testament, talks about marriage, it says marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a picture of Christ in the church. But then in other places it says, eh, if you're married, if you're if you're separated, if you're if you're single, if you're widowed, whatever, as long as you have the kingdom. Uh, and it, it prefers freedom to slavery. But shockingly for us, it says, but but if you find yourself in slavery and you can't get out, don't let it worry you. As long as you're part of the kingdom. Or, or if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it says, whatever, whatever that is, don't worry about that. Whatever, as long as you have the kingdom. If you're wealthy, if you're poor, don't let it bother you so much. However that might be, just a temporary sort of situation, don't let that worry you too much, as long as you have the kingdom. So do you see how the, the kingdom, it, it trumps all these other things that we often put so much value on. These things that, yes, they're important in our lives, but they need to be set 
in relationship to that pearl of great price, to that treasure that rules all other concerns. Now, one more thing. How do we enter the kingdom? How do we become part of the kingdom? How do we have Jesus rule over us? What is it exactly that we need to give up in order to have the kingdom? Well, I can't say all that you will eventually have to give up. That seems to be different for each person. All of us have to be all in with the kingdom if we're going to be part thereof. Uh, I don't know what that will look like in each one of your lives. But there is something that absolutely everyone needs to give up in order to be part of the kingdom. And that thing is our own claim to be righteous people. That's the first thing we need to abandon in order to be part of the kingdom. Paul, he was one who really had to wrestle with this. And it was not an easy thing for him. Why? Because if anyone was righteous by Jewish standards, guess who that was? It was Paul. And Paul, in Philippians, he writes to some people that were boasting about how good they were. And uh, they, were, they were comparing themselves to other people. And they were using the law as a sort of ladder to get up to God. And he says, do you want to play that? Do you really want to go there? I'll go toe-to-toe with you. Do you want to talk about righteousness in the Jewish setting? He says, I have a pedigree that no one can match. And then he goes down and he lists his pedigree. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what he says. He says, take that. Can you do that? Can you go toe-to-toe with me? No one could. But then he says this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul was making the fundamental human error. And this is the error that that it seems to be hardwired into humans. And that is to think that we can produce something that will gain favor with God. That's our righteousness. And whatever standard the, the particular religion or philosophy has, the the way it operates is the same. Do this. Accomplish this. Check this off. Fulfill this. And God will be happy with you. And Paul said, I was on that. And I was doing better than anyone. And then I realized that that was not the way to get to God. That was what was keeping me from God. Because I thought I was fine. Thank you very much. And then he says, But when I met Christ, I realized that I had no righteousness of my own that could commend me to God. And so I counted all that former pride and boasting as rubbish. And I lost it all. But I gained even more. Because I exchanged my self-righteousness 
for a righteousness that comes from God. This is the great discovery that all of us have to make to enter into the kingdom of God. That when the Bible says that you need to have a perfect righteousness, then Christ offers us that righteousness as a free gift. He gives what He commands. So Paul had to discover that righteousness was not his gift to God, but God's gift to him. That's the first exchange. That's the first step to enter into the kingdom of God. That's the first thing that all of us must lose. Lay aside whatever boasting we have that we think makes us better than others or commendable to God and lose it so that we might gain Christ and His righteousness. And my friends, that is the best exchange you will ever, ever make. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You that Your kingdom has broken in to our world in Jesus. It was hidden at the beginning, and in some ways it's hidden still. Because it's still a message about God who became one of us, died on the cross, rose from the dead. But we thank You that that kingdom is growing and growing. And we thank You that the message of the kingdom has reached even to us. And I pray, O God, that all of us would be members, subjects of that kingdom through faith in Jesus. And that we would have that kingdom with the joy with which that man found that hidden treasure and the joy with which that merchant had his precious pearl. And Lord, we thank You that that You give us the righteousness of Christ when we lay aside our own false righteousness and trust in Him alone. And I pray that we would all stand before You in the righteousness of Christ and not our own, And that as we live our lives as subjects of Your kingdom, that Your kingdom would reign over all of our relationships, all of our pursuits, all of our concerns, all of our cares. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.